You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Thank you for joining me. There have been a lot of important conversations on the show in recent weeks. Conversations about systemic racial injustice within the arts and how change is so long overdue. As a white audience member, and former director of an arts organisation, these conversations have made me think at length about how complicit I am in this injustice. Like many white people, I don't think of myself as racist, but have I been sufficiently anti-racist? Quite simply, no. Have I ever stopped to ponder the programming that I see by local, regional and national arts organisations? No. It is a challenge, but a good and necessary one, to see the world not through the prism of our own upbringing, but with empathy for those who are forced to navigate it differently, with more obstacles, with less assumptions about fairness and rights. As I have talked to composers and actors and musicians of colour, and I have read the calls for more equity in the arts, for more representation on stages, in orchestras, in boardrooms, and people have told me about major challenges and microaggressions. It has made me aware of my complicity blindness. And as I have researched the amazing black and brown playwrights, actors, orchestral musicians, writers, composers, conductors and operatic voices, I realise how much I have missed out, how much incredible talent gets pushed to the back, how many stories I want to hear, how many books I want to read, how much music should be the basis for programming, not dropped in as a token gesture. I'm not going to stop having these conversations. There are so many more people who I want to listen to about both their experiences and their art. So this week, I want to revisit a couple of conversations from recent weeks that gave me pause for thought and made me want to learn more. First up is the fabulous Fred Onoverosuoke, otherwise known as Fredo, the most prolific living African composer of classical music, or supreme art music as he calls it. Fredo lives just up the road in St. Louis, and I would dearly love to hear his triptych of American voices, a cantata of the people, played here in Colombia. I've already started my lobbying. And in the second act of today's show, we are going to revisit my conversation with actors Enola White and Barrett Brooks, who talked with me a couple of weeks ago about their experiences of being black actors on Missouri stages. Are you ready? Okay. Let's go. Good morning, Fredo, and thank you so much for chatting to me. It is really such an honor to have you on the show. Oh, no, thank you for having me. The honor is all mine. (laughs) 
Well, you are truly a global citizen, a bit like me. Your parents are from Ghana. You were brought up in both Ghana and Nigeria, but you've made America your home for the last 30 years. And you describe yourself as an immigrant composer. Now, I too am an immigrant, but I still think of myself more as a foreigner or as a European. <laughs> Why do you choose to identify as an immigrant over an African or a Ghanaian Nigerian composer? Well, you hear it from my accent. It's a suckler immigrant, so I choose what I sound like and what I look like and what I write like. An immigrant composer. <laughs> but you're also an African composer. I'm an African composer in a pan-African sense, in in uh, meaning I've traveled across the continent. I've imbibed a lot of different mannerisms, and I'm able to write in different things I've seen in different parts of the beautiful, beautiful continent. Now, your, your compositions are played by orchestras all over the world, and you have traveled extensively to research what you call traceable musical Africanisms. So tell me about some of the far-flung places you have found traceable musical Africanisms and what exactly you're looking for. A traceable Africanism is jazz, it's calypso, it's salsa, it's merengue, it's reggaeton, you know, so I mean, I can go on and on and on. In other words, art forms, cultural styles that were brought to the new world by the early African slaves, you know, to the Americas, not just the United States, but all of the Americas, you know. So these have become combined with other European and indigenous style to create new forms. So um, those are what I call... Africanisms. Uh, there could be some in some areas like in Brazil, in some areas like in Cuba, in Santeria. They could be very, very purist in nature, but in some areas uh, they could be mutated as in jazz, as in gospel, as in rock time. So all of it is Africanism. Now, I mean, musical Africanisms isn't only a historical artifact. I mean, it's a living organism across Absolutely. Africa. So there are still musical Africanisms being created, new ones every every day. What are you seeing coming out of Africa that is uh, going to be the next wave of what goes out around the world? You know, Africa is a very, very interesting place right now. I like to see Africa as... Um, as being influenced by the prodigal son who returned home <laughs> and is taking over. Uh, meaning Africa, most of Africa has, I mean, has imbibed what's going on in America, what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Korea, K-pop. And they are now using these styles that have come home to really reinvent themselves, you know. So, uh, Translation, things are just changing because of the influx of new ideas and they're combining these new ideas with their indigenous drums, rhythms to create new styles. So it, it, it's, it changes so rapidly. 
Right. I've heard you describe classical music as supreme art music. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, supreme, supreme, it can, it's disciplined, you know, and um, it's calculated. It's not necessarily functional, meaning consume and let it go. You know, it's reflective. It's So that's why it's called art in some areas and disciplined by many people. Um, and that attribute of that music is not exclusive to one culture. You know, I, I try to make that clarification. Any, any, any culture or group can be disciplined, be it European, Latin American, African American, African, Asian American. Any culture can be disciplined, can create disciplined art. But you're not including popular music in that discipline. No, no. Popular music falls under the category of uh, consumables, if you will. You know, I mean, it's to be enjoyed, it's for a purpose, it's here and it's gone. Do you like popular music? I love popular <laughs> music. Didn't you see? The, didn't you see the list I just gave you? <laughs> K-pop, calypso, reggae, hip-hop. You know, you just name it. You know, I love it all, really. <laughs> what do you listen to in your car? Oh, I love jazz, and I love some. Oh, I'm a big, 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 crazy, big fan of Debussy. You know, Stravinsky. You know, Bob Marley, Dennis Brown, you know, uh, Rihanna, Kate Perry, you know, I could go on. You know. <laughs> I, <laughs> a polyglot, if you will, you know. I mean, I love to listen to everything, really. <laughs> is there anything you don't like to listen to? There is nothing I don't. If it's music, I love. I love, you know, as a good, good rapper of mine, you know, um, a young doll, he would say, that's major. You know, everything beautiful is major for me. I want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is classical music which you are known for. At what point in your young life did you think this was your avenue? I don't know. I see in Ghana, I, you know, I grew up a boy soprano and, you know, back in the days, a very rigid British system. So, you know, uh, you were exposed to the tediums, the motets, you know, the palestrinas, the bird, the gibbons, talis, and, you know, canticles and things like that, you know, but it was mostly as a boy, boy soprano, you know, it was later, it was later in life, you know. It just happened, really, just happened. You know, mind you, I trained uh, in engineering, but music never left. So I kept coming back, and eventually I decided, this is my home. I better stay in this lane called classical music composition. I think we have this idea of classical music, if you just took a general vox pop, as being a genre that is dominated by 18th and 19th century white men. I call them dusty old men. Um, <laughs> and when you look I, at the... <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> I say it on almost every show. Um, <laughs> and when you look at the programs of most symphony or philharmonic orchestras around the world, we see the same preponderance of dusty old white men. Yet we also see many orchestras struggling to fill 
concert halls and struggling mm. to connect to contemporary, diverse, young audiences. And I'm going to repeat a quote that you gave to Coro Allegro writer. And it's such a beautiful quote, and I'm going to say it many times over the course of my shows. If every concert hall in America could allow a wide variety of repertoire to come in, could allow a different palette of music to be heard with influences from the East and the Middle East, from Africa, the Caribbean and Latin America, influences from the wealth of experiences shared by diverse immigrant populations to America, that would be classical music reimagined. Audience sizes will increase, not decrease, as the recent trend seems to indicate. So my question is, why is this such a struggle for orchestras? It's it's uh, simple. <laughs> it's missed opportunity. What a missed opportunity a lot of our orchestras are exhibiting, you know, we have new immigrants, we have new communities moving into our community, and we're missing a chance to engage them, you know. Uh, Mind you, classical music, the history of classical music as we know it today was always changing, you know. Uh, Today we talk about Tchaikovsky, we talk about Stravinsky, we, we talk about Mussorgsky, you know. Mind you, were it not for wonderful music consortium patrons like Sergei Diaghilev, you know, who moved from Russia into the Parisian scene to help promote new kind of music. You see, a lot of this nutcracker we enjoy today wouldn't exist, you know? The, 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 the rights of string, Petrushka, Firebird, they will not exist. But for Sergei Gail and his friends who move over from Russia. So the point meaning that wouldn't it be really nice if orchestras tap into these new communities moving in and program music that reflect them, program new composers, African-American composers, black composers, Latin American composers, Asian American composers, not, not as a one-off, but on a regular basis. You create you create an audience by doing things on a regular basis, not once as a Kwanzaa celebration or once as a Black History Month, so, but a commitment. You see, when you have that commitment, you will attract new audiences to your classical music hall. But I think... We're missing that opportunity. And as long as orchestra halls, concert halls miss that opportunity, unfortunately, our audiences for classical music are going to continue to gray, you know, gray mm-hmm. hair, the same old money, trying to recycle Mozart and Beethoven and, you know. And that's not the intention of classical music. It's supposed to be organic. So how difficult is it as a Black and African composer to get your orchestral work heard? Oh, my gosh. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a daily, endless knocking on the doors, you know, knocking. I like to use the phrase, I'm never tired of knocking at the door of canon. I'm constantly you know, talking to people. And I'm also just really, really 
are grateful to have a wonderful network of friends, you know, who are able to tell your friends. And besides, my music tends to speak for itself. You know, that sounds self-serving, but <laughs> uh, people see, people hear, and they tell their friends. So I am really very lucky, I must say. Do you think maybe that we're finally at a tipping point in the arts in America and the West? that it's beginning to see its whiteness and starting to really listen to its black and brown communities and opening doors to black and brown artists and audiences? Or do you think it's going to be business as usual? I, I, I hope we're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope. You know, but I'm also, uh, you know, I, I try to look at things uh, in a metaphysical way, you know, in that everything in life tend to have its equilibrium point, you understand? At an equilibrium, things got to change, you know, don't matter, you know, how powerful, how resourceful we are. But at every equilibrium point in life, things got to change, you know. Uh, we can go, or we can wax historical if you want, but that's what it is. Things got to change. So I hope that we can voluntarily, as a society, see what's going on right now as opportunity to be part of instituting change. Well, me too. I'm I'm ready to hear different things when I go and listen to orchestras. And and <laughs> I have loved just hanging out on your website and listening to your music because oh. it, it is very enticing. And I'd love to hear a big orchestra play it. But in, in reading about and listening to your work, I heard at least part of your triptych of American voices, a cantata for the people. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about it. So before we listen to a piece, let's start with a little about the backdrop of what was happening culturally, socially, politically at the time you wrote the work and what you wanted audiences to understand. I was commissioned by Coro, as you well know, and the, the directives were pretty straightforward. Fredo, everybody's very concerned what's going on, you know, in this country, you know, following the 2016 election, you know. And uh, Maestro David Hodgkins gave me Maya Angelou's poem, uh, Why the, the Caged Bird Sings. And then um, one of the singers at Coro gave him to give me um, Langston Hughes' poem, as I grew older, and then they asked me, well, you know, you, 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 you get to choose one more poem. And I chose uh, Michael Castro's We Need to Talk. So those three poems were my guiding post, if you will, uh, to express concern following the 2016 election and where we've gotten ourselves as at that time. The cage bird is a metaphor for, you know, uh, people who, a population, a populace that's uh, imprisoning in itself, yearning to be out like other birds, all the free birds and smell the roses, you know. So, uh, uh, so is the basis why the cage bird sings is the basis for the first movement. And then the second movement, was inspired by Langston Hughes' poem, As I Grew Older. And it talks about, in it, um, it talks about walls that prevents the narrator from 
his or her dreams, you know. And then the third movement by the glorious poem by Michael Castro, who is St. Louis's first uh, poet laureate, actually. And he wrote, uh, he wrote, we need to talk right after the Ferguson riots in St. Louis here, you know. We need to talk is just about getting past the disconnect that ruined our society and just really talking to one another, appreciating one another. So those those, those are the things that uh, the beacon, the, the guiding post, if you will, that I had to write the triptych. Well, let's listen to the closing passage from part one of the Triptych of American Voices, performed by the Coro Allegro Orchestra of Boston with counter Tai One, tenor Jonas Burdis, and conducted by David Hodgkins.
part one of the triptych of American voices, a cantata for the people by Fredo, performed by the Coro Allegro Orchestra of Boston with Counter Tayone, tenor Jonas Burdis, and conducted by David Hodgkins. Now, as well as the three poems that you mentioned before um, we listened to the piece, you also include a, a refrain or a chant by George Orwell about politicians being corrupt and liars and thieves. What brought you to that particular passage? (laughs) (laughs) Politicians are crazy politicians, corrupt politicians, you know. Well, you see, I, as you mentioned early in the program, you talked about me coming to America about 30 years ago, you know, 30, 31 years ago. I came to America to run away from crazy corrupt politicians from Africa. <laughs> did you bring them with you? <laughs> I did not. I did not. And it just suddenly looked like I've gone full circle. I'm, uh, you know, I, I said, look, I came to America to run away from this. What's going on? <laughs> You know, I'm back to the line of crazy politicians, corrupt politicians, where common sense no longer makes sense, you know? So that's what that's about. And and no one said it better than, than George Orwell, Eric Blair, his real name, you know, people that elect <laughs> corrupt politicians. We shouldn't be blaming anybody but ourselves. <laughs> They say the people get the government they deserve, but I don't. That's right. I'm not sure that we really deserve this. We don't deserve, but when you have a system where a majority rule decides whether that majority was rigged or not, it gets to decide, then we are all complicit. Mm. <laughs> Does it make you want to run back to Ghana? You know, I've thought about it, but it's it's not any better any there, you know. There was a time when I thought China was uh, a possibility, and I found out China is not going to change tomorrow. It's gotten, it's actually, it's actually gotten worse, but I won't get into that. So we live in a very fractious world right now, and it's, it's very, very it's getting tougher to be hopeful. But I want to be always hopeful that things would be better. You sound like a hopeful person. <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> I rest my head on the pillar of beautiful music. <laughs> well, and you allow us to rest our heads on it too. Fredo, it has been such a delight to talk to you. Thank you for all of the music that you put out into the world and for your optimism and for, for staying here in Missouri, in St. Louis and hanging out with us. I'm glad that you're here. What an honor. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really, really grateful. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Fredo. George Orwell said Oh, 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 oh,
And from the world of supreme art music, our next stop today is the Mid-Missouri Theatrical Stage to chat with actors Enola White and Barrett Brooks. Good morning, Enola and Barrett. Good morning. morning. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me about racism in theatre. I know it's an emotional subject and that some people are not ready to articulate their frustrations and disappointments and anger just yet. So I really thank you for starting this conversation with me. We should maybe start by saying that you both are involved in theatre because you love it and not because it pays any bills. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And you have both been in multiple productions at Columbia Entertainment Company at Maplewood Barn and Talking Horse Productions. And in NOLA, you not only act and direct in productions, but you also play saxophone or woodwinds in the orchestra pit. So you've really seen it from all angles. So I want to ask you both questions on two levels. First, your response to the national calls by Black, Indigenous and people of colour for white American theatre to recognise the racial injustices that it facilitates? And second, what your experiences have been here in Columbia and Mid-Missouri and how white Mid-Missouri theatre should change. So Enola, earlier this month, 300 actors signed a letter that was posted online, which starts, Dear White American Theatre and which says very clearly, enough is enough, and that you are all part of this house of cards built on white fragility and supremacy. And this is a house that will not stand. So I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the national theater scene? I absolutely agree. I think that A house divided cannot stand. And we've got to do something to bring more people into our theater spaces. People of color need a spot to have their voices heard. And I think that we've done a good job of opening doors and allowing opportunities for people of color to be on our stages, be in our productions, be in our theaters and be recognized and appreciated for who they are. And not just people of color, but anyone from any kind of underrepresented minority group has a a space um, in Columbia Theater. Is it perfect? No, but we're working towards a, a a better theater experience for all of those involved. I think that there's phrases like colorblind casting, where, you know, you go in and a director says, I don't I don't see you because of the color of your skin. Well, that feels like you're ignoring an entire part of who I am. That's one of the most blatantly obvious things about me, other than being a woman, that you would see is the color of my skin. And so for you to deny that, even though you think it is it is good, is actually a negative. Um, and it, it really makes you feel disenfranchised and you don't want to go into the theater. You don't want to participate. And then sometimes when you're in the theater, the way that people talk to you, the words that they use, the microaggressions that are used, and sometimes people don't realize it. And if you're a strong opinionated person, like I am, you will correct them. Um, But you hear those words and it really alienates you from the situation. So, yes, white theaters, white Americans in theater, we need to do better. We need to open the door to people who are different, people who want to do theater because we are all the same quirky kinds of people, no matter the color of our skin, who we love, whatever. We all love this art form. So why should we not work together to uphold it and support each other? Is colorblind casting a thing in Colombia? Do most companies do that? I don't think companies do it. I think it's 
directors. And like I said, it's something that they view as a positive, but I personally view as a negative. So when I hear a director say we're going to do colorblind casting, I politely ask them to reconsider because, again, that's ignoring a very big part of who I am as an individual. I can't change the fact that I'm a black woman because you don't want to cast based on color. That's part of what I would potentially bring to the the part is my experiences as being a black woman. So for you to say colorblind casting, that again, that ignores a significant part of who I am and what I could potentially bring to the role. Barrett, what's your thoughts on colorblind casting? I would totally agree with Enola simply because, I mean, I've heard that phrase so many times and lots of times I, I hope the directors have the best, I guess their heart is in the right place. But at the same time, just like she's saying, it, being black is who I am. It's part of who I am. It's part of who I'm bringing to the character that I'm portraying. And so anytime you're just saying, hey, it's colorblind, then you're not really including me in the role because I'm here. And, and when I'm in a role, I like to use everything that's happened. I like to use my pain, my frustration, my joy, all of it to help bring that character to light. And if you're not doing that, if you're not even acknowledging it, I feel like they're you're leaving a lot out and it kind of feels like you're just I'm being disregarded for all the things that I am and all the things I can bring. There have been calls by playwrights Keely Gibson and Stacey Rose, and they say, we are living in revolutionary times. It is time to revolutionize how we create as individuals and how we engage white spaces, should we choose to, moving forward. Equity is no longer a request. It is a requirement. So, Barrett, do you think the arts, the arts generally, really, are at a tipping point and that change is coming? Yes, I, I definitely think there are. I mean, especially speaking in Columbia, I've seen a lot of changes on the shows that they've been choosing to produce. I mean, I was lucky enough to be in part of the Raising the Sun cast over at Maplewood Barn, which I think was probably the first time they had a predominantly black cast on the stage. And it was a, quite a boon for the community. And I personally, I loved it being around a group of people that look like me. And especially when I was performing, I got to see a lot of people that also look like me looking back at me, mm -hmm. sharing the pain of this great story, feeling everything that I felt. And it was a beautiful thing that I honestly had never felt before. And I loved it. And I kind of got addicted to it. And I want to see so much more of it all over the place. And I, I think it's something that we bring great stories. Everyone has great stories, but I think our stories have a lot of pain and frustration and joy and all the things that we have. And those stories should be out there just as much as any other thing, just as much as you should see Oklahoma, you should see stories by Lynn Nottage or anybody else. I just think it's just as fair. I think it's just as good and just as valuable and they should be on the stage and it shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't be a thing. It should be these are great stories. We need to tell them. And they're from different voices. So, And everyone should hear them because it opens up a lot of eyes. Mm. Enola, are you, do you stand at this point and feel hopeful or feel like it's going to be business as usual? I feel very hopeful, um, especially in the Columbia area. We have a fantastic base of people of color who, like Barrett, they want to get out there. They want to perform. I mean, I'll include myself in that group. Like, we want to have opportunities to be on the stage. And my phrase for the longest has been, if you build a bridge, they will come. So you just have to put the opportunities out there for people to come and participate, to see people like themselves on stage. Representation absolutely matters. So when you see someone 
on stage who looks like Barrett, you see a little boy in the audience who is excited and wants to get into theater. And maybe they go on and they make it onto Broadway, um, but maybe they, they stick around and they're here in Columbia and we have another pocket, another future generation of actors to come who want to be on that stage and just share and partake in the arts. So, I mean, for both of you, you entered theater without seeing that little girl or that little boy on the stage. I mean, you came into this predominantly white space and said, accept me for who I am. And was that difficult? What what pushback did you get? So I'm kind of stubborn. Um, <laughs> and if I want to do something, I will do my best to insert myself into the situation. So for me and I will go back. That is my parents' fault. <laughs> um, they raised me to, to, to be that way, to be independent and inquisitive, to want to go into those situations to see what it's like for myself. So for me, I didn't have the representation of, of a black woman in many roles because I grew up in a predominantly white area. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. So if I wanted to do anything, I wasn't going to have someone on the stage or in the band who necessarily looked like me. If that was something that I wanted to do, I just had to do it. So a lot of who I am and a lot of the way that I approach my own performing is because of that nature is I didn't see anybody. So I'm going to go ahead and do it because I think that this is fun and I'm going to take great pleasure and great joy. And then knowing in turn that someone can see me on stage, a little girl, a little boy can look and see me out on stage and they can see that I'm doing something great and I can hopefully in turn inspire them. So they don't have to be the stubborn, sassy um, little one walking into the room saying, I'm going to play the saxophone. You can't tell me that I can't. They have a little bit more leverage to walk in and a little bit more of an easier path to get to, to get to where they want to go. Barrett, what pushed you into the space? I I grew up in Kansas City, um, but my parents, they were public school teachers. So they were like, uh, we're going to get you in private school. And it just happened that in my school, theater was just something people did. It was just as valuable as sports and anything else. It was It was a great environment. But at the same time, I was the only black face in every production. And so when you're that person, it kind of helps you kind of have to stand up because you already stand out anyway. I've always said that I already stand out anyway, so I might as well just make sure I'm seen and work hard and let everyone know that I'm here and I'm going to do my best and I'm going to put on a great show. And so I've always kind of been that, that only person in the cast. And it's difficult. Sometimes it's hard because especially in high school, I was with a lot of people that said a lot of uh, really ignorant things for lack of a better word. Mm. And, I would take them to task and they'd be like, oh, man, just chill. I'm like, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. Like, You wouldn't say that to anybody else. Like, if I said it to you, that wouldn't be cool. So let's let's just sit here and do let's just do what we're supposed to do. And it just kind of helped me grow and help me get stronger and be able to stand up and speak up. And I mean, my parents are always told us that, you know, we got to be better in this world. We have to. It's unfortunate, but we have to work twice as hard to get half as much stuff. And Uh so lots of times I work twice as hard and just to be seen. Mm. Enola, you mentioned that you had experienced microaggressions here in Colombia. What kind of things have been said that um, that have just made you like stop and say it's not okay? Well, the biggest one was when I was told to act blacker. Um, mm. no. So <laughs> I, I, I stopped 
I looked and I asked if they wanted to rephrase what they said to me because there, I understood what they were trying to get at, but there are different ways that you can ask someone to, to go harder, you know, be a little bit more um, chill, be a little bit more relaxed. There are different ways that you could have elicited the same response from me other than saying be blacker. So I think that that's one of the, the primary responses. I mean, some of the other ones have been mostly related to me being a woman in theater and people assuming that I don't have the education or the understanding of how something works because I'm a girl. And that's also doubly frustrating, but a conversation for a different time. Mm. But yeah, that's the one that sticks out the most to me. And when anybody asks me that question, that's the example that I give. Um, it's blatantly obvious, but you don't say something like that to someone. If you are trying to to elicit a response out of someone, you want a character to develop in a certain way. What are some of the attributes that you want from that character? Don't fall into a racial stereotype to try to elicit a response. Because again, there are different ways that you could have, different words that you could have chosen. And no one would have thought the wiser because it's part of who that character was. And it would have aided in the development of that individual. And it would have been appreciated. Appreciated. Mm. Barrett, what about you? Uh, much like her, I've been told many times that I don't talk black enough, as it were. And it always just takes me aback because I am black and I talk how I talk. And it always frustrates me because it devalues who I am because of how I speak is a part of my development. It's part of everything I know. It's part of my history. It's part of how I was brought up, you know, and yeah, it's one of those things that happens so often that it's just grating. It's just like fingernails on a chalkboard to me every time it happens. And especially now, I like to call up people and put them on front street and let them know it's not okay. You know, I mean, when I was younger, I would maybe laugh it off or make a joke. But nowadays, I'm like, no, that, that doesn't work. You need to stop because that's insulting. There is a huge difference between plays with black people in them, which can often be, I think, detrimental to the black community and black theater which focuses on social justice and uplifting a community rather than putting it down and i feel that in columbia we do have a good number of black and brown people on our stages but we very rarely see black theater is it time for a black theater company in columbia barrett i definitely think so i mean it would be great so we would have a place to put in these stories i mean because i know i've talked to a lot of people that when I tell them to do theater, especially I'm talking to black people in the community, they're like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. I mean, where can we go? Where can we have these stories? And I tell them about the places. And I especially would love it if we had a place where we could hear our stories. You know, there's nothing wrong with Shakespeare. There's nothing wrong with any of that other stuff. But our stories need to be out there where we can see us and we can perform our stories and we can celebrate in our past and our future and all the things that we can. And I think that would be a beautiful thing. And I know I've talked to other people that said, oh, I don't know if there's an audience for it. There's an audience. Uh -huh. There is. There's always people that are going to come see stories about people and about want to see those things. They want to hear it. They want to learn. And there's been so many conversations I've had with people that they say that they're, they're not going to do it because there's not an audience. There's not people that are going to come and people are going to come. And I think that it would be a beautiful thing. It would be an amazing thing, especially for this community. And at this time, it would just be phenomenal. Enola, what conversations have you had around the idea of a black theater company? 
I am absolutely in support of it. I mean, you look at, like Barrett was saying, people say that there's not going to be an audience for it. But then you look at what happened with Raisin in the Sun, with Ain't Misbehaving, with Green Book at Talking Horse, with Dreamgirls at CEC, and Hairspray at CEC. You look at the people that were in those audiences, and those were people that had never come to a show at any of those theaters before. And it was simply because of the stories that were being told. They wanted to hear those stories. They wanted to to see it firsthand. There were people that I was talking to in the audience after Hairspray, and they would come up and they would say, thank you for featuring people of color in your cast. And this is something that I never thought I'd see in this community. So there's, there is a, a group out there who wants to see more of this. And there's a group out there who wants to perform more of those stories. So I think that being able to build up a repertoire and having um, organizations like the Como Grio Society, they're going to be fantastic ways to, to launch us forward to having a repertoire, a organization for people of color to come and perform. And I had Richard Harris on the show last week, and he was talking about the Columbia Griot Society. And that's, you know, that does feel like the first step towards creating a black theatre company. I mean, there was a point last year, I forget when it was, was it in the fall when there were three plays on, all of which had a lot of roles for black people. And I know that was, we were kind of in short supply. It's like, how do we find more black actors? Do you feel like if we have a black theatre company, that there are more potential black and brown actors that are just waiting for this to happen and that we will see an influx of people ready to be in a black theater company. Yeah, I think the fact that we had three shows going at the same time and each one of them was independently successful answers that question. Yes. Did we have to, you know, go and find people? Yeah, but sometimes you have to do that for other shows as well where, you know, you just don't have the auditionees come out and you have to go and ask um, people to come. But you get people that have, who, going back to what we were talking about, who have never done theater before, who didn't think it was okay for them to do theater or had, you know, an opinion that it's only a white space. And then you get them on stage for The Wiz, Dreamgirls, Vera Stark, and you watch them flourish on that stage and they get addicted. And that's what you want. You want to keep them. You want them to bite and you want to get them involved more. And we've got those, some of those people in the Como Grio Society, some of those people, I've got a just a side group me with a bunch of people of color who were in Dream Girls and in Hairspray and in Ain't Misbehaving. And we just randomly will send out audition announcements to each other because we want to encourage each other to go and be in different shows. But if we had a space that was just for people of color just to perform, I think that would be it would be a safer space and it would allow more people who want to try it to try it because I think there's there's this assumption that in predominantly white spaces, you have to be, like Barrett says, you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And I don't want them to feel that way. I want them to feel that, yeah, they are twice as good because they're twice as good, not like they had to work harder for it. Um, so I want them to go into those those auditions feeling entirely confident. So I think having a space where they can safely practice, where they can learn the art and the craft is is going to be paramount to continue to, to build. And we've got the steam going, so we just got to keep the train running. And if I could jump on that. Sure. Also, I think that is also that it's important that we have our stories because there's so many times I've tried out for roles where there weren't where there's many shows that I wanted to do, but that I didn't feel like there was a role for me. There wasn't a place for me to be who I wanted to. And if we can pick those stories that show 
what we can do and have where you can read the character and be like, this sounds like me. This sounds like something I've gone through. I think that that would encourage more people to jump in to try it because I know there's many times there's shows that I audition for. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get it because it just sounds like a white person. Right. And, but if I read it and I'm like, holy crap, this sounds like something I've gone through. This is something that I could actually bring something to the role that I've lived through. And I think that would be a great addition to our theater community. Right. We touched on this earlier. I mean, you um, mentioned, I think, Talking Horse. I mean, they worked really hard this year to to correct one inequality and to, and to give more stage time to female actors and female playwrights, female librettists and composers. And now, obviously, we're seeing more calls for more black theatre, more queer black theatre. There is so much theatre mm-hmm. that needs to be seen. And it, it just to me, it feels like we can't waste time rolling out more Shakespeare and Mamma Mia. There's too much important theatre that isn't getting on our stages. Do you think that we're going to see people's or the theatre company's 2021 season, assuming that it happens, look differently maybe than how they originally planned in Ola? I would hope so. Uh, I do serve on a play selection committee, so that's kind of uh, my on my agenda to have a lot of of those stories told because I think that you know, yeah, everybody wants to see the big tent poles of Oklahoma and they want to see Mama Mia and things like that. But there are you can see those shows. There are a dime a dozen. They're going to be out there um, and they're not going to go away. But there are much more important stories that can connect people to each other. And that's that's the fundamental of community theater is making those connections, laying that community network. So why don't we tell those stories to connect more people and to, to bring them in? So is it going to be a hundred percent of a revolution? Um, probably not, but you're going to slowly start to see more of those stories being told. And I hope, I hope that we can get to a place where we can regularly routinely tell those stories because like Barrett said, there are people out there who they come to auditions and they come to auditions just to audition, but they don't see a spot for them. I want everybody to see a spot for them and see a place for them. Barrett, what plays would you like to see produced in Columbia? I know one I I personally love. It came out a few years ago. It's a musical called Passing Strange. It was on Broadway and I came out of my radar because Spike Lee loved it so much. He made a documentary of it and I got a chance to watch a documentary and I was blown away. It's a beautiful story about a black kid growing up in Los Angeles and just goes to Europe. It's a wonderful story. It's a rock musical. The music's great. The story's wonderful. And I mean, I've talked to anybody and everybody that'll listen. I love it. I would love to see it. Not just because I want to roll in it because I do, but (laughs) it's, it's also, I think it'd be a great story to tell. And I think it's something that people need to see because it talks about all the things talks about culture, talks about religion, and talks about what it's like being a black person in Europe and how he's seen. I can't speak enough about it. I would love to see that show put on for anybody listening. Enola, what would you like to say? Enola's listening. Oh, I'm listening. I, I just wrote it down. Um, so there's a musical, it's called After Midnight, and it's more along the lines of a, a jukebox musical, but it's it's kind of like in the same vein of Ain't Misbehaving. It really talks about like the Cotton Club, and it's a lot of jazz music, you know, Ellington, Arlen Hughes, poetry. It, it's a beautifully written story, and it just, it features all african-american cast and all african-american music and i think that i i can't wait to see it i was looking for you know musicals 
just so that I could find something fun and interesting. And this one just stuck out to me because the music is fantastic. It's fun to play. Um, that's something that's why I'm on the play selection committees is to talk about the orchestra perspective. It's something that's fun to play. And it's something that seems like it's fun to sing. There's a lot of dancing. It would be a fantastic show to, to bring to the stage just to kind of bring in that, you know, Harlem Renaissance sound to Columbia. And Nola, is there anything else before we close you want to say about your experience as a, as a Black actor in mid-Missouri? So I will say my experience as a Black actor in mid-Missouri is very limited. My experience has been more so to the behind the scenes and being in the orchestra, you know, serving in various committees, um, being on production teams and things like that. And it's really, again, those those microaggressions that, that come through. But like I said, I am a strong enough person to say, hey, you said this and this is incorrect. Allow me to help you understand why this is incorrect. But the reason that I do that is because I know that there's someone who's coming up behind me who isn't going to be that strong person. And those words will cut them down and send them out the door. And I don't want that to happen to them. So I will take the brunt of it. I will, you know, mow the lawn for them, create a pathway for them so that they can continue to blaze the trail. So I will take the brunt of the beating if I have to, to make this a better place and a better space for individuals of all representations, all kinds of backgrounds to come and participate in the the field of theater. Barrett, if I could be your fairy godmother and grant you three wishes for things that you'd like to see happen in the Columbia theater scene or (laughs) what would they be? Three things. (laughs) More roles for me. Just kidding. Um, But I would just like to say, like I've been saying the whole time, I would just like to see more roles for people of all colors. I like to see more stories for everybody. Not, I mean, I would love to see more roles that still, but everyone's stories. I mean, there's so many plays out there. Everybody's writing. Everybody has unique stories, and I want to hear all of them. And I want that all to be included, and I especially think it's important. I mean, I've been lucky enough that they're seeing a groundswell, especially in our community, where our voices are starting to be told, just like you were saying last year when they had like three shows going on all at the same time, which was wonderful. And I love getting all the calls where like, can you do this? I'm like, I would love to, but I'm already in this show. But it made me so happy to see all those people coming out and putting on those great shows. It, it was, I mean, it was the first time in, in my time here I'd ever seen anything like that. And I love it. And I hope it continues because I, it's nothing but a benefit to our community, theater community and our community as a whole, because I, I think Columbia is a kind of, I always call Columbia a little oasis in the middle of Missouri because it can, it can get sketchy mm-hmm. a few miles mm-hmm. in any direction, mm-hmm. actually really sketchy. I've, I could tell you stories, but once again, that's for another day, but <laughs> this is a cool community and I like being a part of it. And I like hopefully being, you know, one little helper to make things a little bit better for everyone here. So. Well, 25 years ago, August Wilson gave a speech when he called on a white American theater to change its ways. But one of the things that he also said that he believed in was that we can meet on the common ground of the American theater. So I I really hope that that is the case, because if we can't meet on the ground of American theater, I don't know where we can meet. But it sounds like things are moving in the right direction. And, and I would love, love, love to see a black theater company. And I would love to see... And to experience stories that come from the black community and that are told by black people. I'm, I'm a little tired of white theater. Yeah. So <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Darius and Enola, thank you so much for taking time to chat to me. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And that is it for another week. I will post a link to the excerpts from Fredo's Triptych of American Voices, a cantata of the people, on our Facebook page and also on the Speaking of the Arts webpage on the KOPN website. So you too can help with the lobbying. If you want to listen to this show again or suggest it to somebody else, all the episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more arts chat. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.